Open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 13, Solomon's downfall. 1 Kings 11, verse 1, I'll start reading. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away, from their, turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your day for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Let's pray before we get into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you that we can study it. We pray that it would be pressed on our hearts. Give me clarity in speech and give us hearts to receive what you give us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were around, especially if you were a kid in the 1950s and 60s in America, Mickey Mantle would have been a household name. One of the greatest baseball players of all time, known for his legendary power, his all-around ability, and he was a hero to many young kids. He was bigger than life. And one of those young kids back in the 60s who idolized Mickey Mantle was my dad. Now, he was growing up in Oregon, and back then there weren't 700 channels and 30 ESPNs. You had limited viewing options. And so one of the few teams they actually got to see were the New York Yankees, who Mantle played for. Now, the Mick, as he was known, was known for his intense hustle on the field, and he would have been emulated on baseball fields across the country. And in the waning years of his career, and into retirement, being as popular as he was, 
He would do exhibition performances. He would show up with a handful of other players, and they'd put on a home run derby or some sort of exhibition. And he did one of these up in Oregon, up in Portland, near where my dad was. So this was going to be his opportunity to see one of his childhood heroes in person. So he goes to the stadium with great expectation and anticipation. But to his surprise, Mantle comes out onto the field, and he's visibly drunk. And he, needless to say, he didn't put on much of a performance. See, in addition to his great athletic ability, he was also plagued by alcohol abuse his entire career. And it wasn't uncommon for him to overdo it at things like these. And it became a source of regret for much of his life. Ultimately, it would contribute in later years to his death. And needless to say, my dad never looked at Mickey Mantle the same way again. And it was a great realization that this great baseball star was really just a very flawed man. And this is a bit of what we see in our passage today. A young man with great promise who allowed sin to creep into his life and cause tragedy. Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, the one who built the temple for Yahweh, a man who falls into tragic sin and sin that would devastate the nation of Israel for hundreds of years, for years to come. And it serves as a a shocking account of sinfulness in the heart of man. Now, 1 Kings, or all of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, were written during during the Babylonian captivity. And our text comes near the end of a sweeping account from Joshua all the way through Kings of the rise and fall of Israel. And 1 Kings shows the kingdom at its peak under Solomon, the first part of Kings before our text. And then it drops to the lowest of idol worship amongst all the wicked kings in Israel and Judah until they finally are taken into captivity. And chapter 11, right where we stand, is a hinge point. It's where everything turns. One side is promises and all the glory of following and being obedient to the Lord. And all, all that comes after is catastrophe. Verse 1, now King Solomon. Those three words, now we're getting tipped off. We're about to hear something different than what we've just been reading about him. We're going to encounter some facts about Solomon that are totally counter to the glowing words we just read before that. There's an abrupt change. You see in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, just before this, the queen of Sheba is telling Solomon, how blessed are your men, how blessed are these servants, your servants who stand before you. And later in chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, says, so Solomon became greater than all the kings on the earth, just verses before what we read in our text. So what do we have in chapter 11, verses 1 to 23? Well, first of all, we've got a clear explanation to those in captivity who are reading this, how they got there, how Israel ended up where they were. And for their purpose and for ours, it's a warning passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 13, we'll see four elements of Solomon's fall for the purpose of avoiding the dangers that led to it. And we're going to answer this question. What happened? What happened from chapter 10, the greatest point in the kingdom, to the downfall? And there's these four parts. I'll go back through them 
uh, when, I, when I mention them, so you don't have to, to get them all now. But the first is the cause of Solomon's fall, verses 1 through 4. Then we'll look at the extent of Solomon's fall, verses 5 through 8. The consequence of Solomon's fall, verses 9 through 11. And finally, hope in spite of Solomon's fall in verses 12 to 13. So let's start with this. The cause of Solomon's fall, verses 1 through 4. And the author here is pretty plain about it. He mentions the heart five times in four verses. Verse 2, they will surely turn your heart away. Verse 3, and his wives turned his heart away. Verse 4, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Again in verse 4, as the heart of David his father had been. The heart, the heart, the heart. And we know that the heart isn't the way the view the world, the way the world views the heart. It's not just emotions. It's not, it's not just feelings. The heart is the richest biblical term for the totality of man. The emotions, the thought, the will. It's interesting. Christ puts it this way. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart, thoughts. The heart is tied to everything. Wisdom and understanding are seated in the heart. Now listen, back in, we know the famous prayer that Solomon has to the Lord. What does he pray for? He prays back in uh, 1 Kings 3 for a wise and discerning heart. And the Lord was pleased that he prayed for these things. But we see stressed here what happened. His heart, his heart was turned away. But more than that, what caused the turning of the heart? What was it that would allow his heart to turn away the way it did? What leads up to it? And there's some clues right in the preceding text. And it's not so surprising, but if you go back, you don't, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 17, there's some instructions for the king. And it says this, Moses gives these instructions in anticipation of a king coming one day. And chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verse 16, he says, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. But look back with me in chapter 10. We have some some hints as to what's coming. Chapter 10, verse 14. So these three things, gold, horses, women, Chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold, which came into Solomon's kingdom in one year, was 666 talents talents of gold. Thousands of pounds of gold coming into the kingdom. There's the gold. Chapter 10, verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with, with the king in Jerusalem. There's the horses. Where wasn't he supposed to get those horses from? Egypt. Chapter 10, verse 28. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and from Q, and the king's merchants procured them from Q for a price. We've got gold, we've got horses, and we enter verse 1 of chapter 11, the trifecta. What is it? Women. He pursues foreign women. He's not only in direct disobedience to the kingly instructions, He's in disobedience of Moses' commands, Exodus 34, 13 to 16. This is plain to anybody. Make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. Why? Why? You might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods 
and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So everything is laid out. So by the time we get to chapter 11 and we look in hindsight, everything is glowing, but all of the signs were there. You know, I, I worked in uh, road work, highway construction before uh, coming to seminary. And we closed a lot of roads down. Almost every time we did anything, we'd close a road, close a freeway, close lanes on a freeway, shut the entire freeway down. But something we always did, you had to do, was put out advanced warning signs. So if you're a, a half a mile or a mile away, you're going to get a big message board saying, hey, right lanes closed ahead. And then you, as you approach closer and closer, you're going to have reflective signs if it's out at night telling you lanes closed, lanes closed. Get closer and closer. More often, you see more and more signs. Finally, you're going to get to where they're closing the lane, and there's going to be an arrow pointing for you to get over, and cones tapered. And inevitably, almost every night, somebody plows through the cones. <laughs> if, and, and, and we just hope they hit the cones. They might run in. They might cause an accident. We've had you know, crazy accidents happen out there. But what would the, the end point is crashing into the, the site, but they would have had to blow past sign after sign, warning after warning. They would have disobeyed every warning leading up to it. And that's what we have here. He had to ignore all of these warnings, all these commands. So the turn of the heart, the, the one thing God wants had to start somewhere. Where did his turned heart start? And it, it starts in his disobedience to God's commands. Verse 11 Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, that's why he's going to tear the kingdom away. Disobedience. We're going to examine his disobedience. So the cause of the turn heart is disobedience. Now let's examine the details of that disobedience. It's three things. It's pragmatic or practical. It's prolonged. And it's partial or partial obedience. So his disobedience was pragmatic. 1 Kings 3.1, do you guys remember that one? Famously, he, he's anointed king, and what's he do? Marries Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he do this? Well, it was politically expedient. It was, it was just good practice. Linking of these nations together would have fostered peace, and normally, in a, in a secular kingdom, this would have been really good politics. But where does it stop? Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. He takes a wife from nearly every nation surrounding Israel. See, we can always justify our disobedience based on pragmatism. How many times in our lives would we be taking the easier road if we would just keep the peace? What's he doing? Let's keep peace with these surrounding nations. We'll just disobey. You know, I'll take a, 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 an Egyptian wife because you know what? We, we run the face of a, uh, the risk of attack if we don't do these things. Everybody else does it. We're just going to do what makes sense. Doesn't want to have any confrontations. This, this can happen in our families, at our job site. I don't want to cause waves. I don't want to confront anybody. But we're knowing what we're, we know what we're doing is in disobedience to the Lord. So disobedience for the sake of pragmatism for doing what makes sense to the world isn't an excuse whether it's with your friends, it's our family, it's our coworkers. But his disobedience wasn't only pragmatic. It was prolonged. Verse four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. In verse two, it says, he was holding fast to these in love. This word holding fast, this is, 
straight back to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined or cling, grasp to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So now Solomon is clinging in love to the very thing that the Lord has forbidden. And we ask ourselves, is it still for political expediency? Is it still just to keep peace with the nations around him? No, it's gone beyond that. He's clinging in love. 1 Kings 3.3, back when when, uh, Solomon was first anointed king, it says Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. He loved the Lord, and now he's clinging to foreign wives and loving them. And the interesting thing about this loving and this clinging This is language that you can see several times in Deuteronomy. The Lord pairs these two things together. We are to love Yahweh and cling to him. And there's a point being made here by the author. He's loving these foreign forbidden women and clinging to them. Not only that, it says, verse 3, 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Again, 700, 300 for politics. Imagine how long it would take to accumulate those numbers. So what starts at simple disobedience for practical, practical purposes takes root over a long time. And it turned his heart away, as I said in verse four. And the, the nature of this, this verb is that it's sudden. Yet we know it wasn't sudden. We knew it took a long time. A slow process with sudden results. You might remember uh, in 2007, on I-35W the, uh, near Minneapolis, the Missis- the, uh, a bridge that went over the Mississippi River, the I-35W Mississippi River Bridge, August 1st, 2007, during rush hour traffic, is a complete collapse into the river. It killed 13 people, and that bridge was constructed in 1967. In 1990, it received its first rating as structurally deficient, 17 years before the collapse. And it got annual inspections from 1993 till 2007. And so you look at something like that and you see a bridge falling into a river, killing people, and you go, what a sudden disaster. And we know for 17 years, really for 40 years, that bridge was deteriorating and they saw the damage in it. So the day that it come, it seems sudden, but it was, laid, it, was, it was damaged far before that. That's a picture of what we see here. We get to chapter 11, Solomon falls, and we go back and we go, structurally deficient for years leading up to it. So when we find ourselves coming to great sin or see others, we say, how did I get here? How did they get here? It's because of a prolonged disobedience. But not only was his disobedience pragmatic, prolonged, it was also partial, partial disobedience or partial obedience. Verse four, it says, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God. This, this root word is the same root for peace. It does not, in, nowhere in our text, think about this, nowhere does it indicate that the temple sacrifices had ceased. He's setting up idols to foreign gods. They're burning incense to them. Meanwhile, the temple is still there and they're still offering sacrifices. God wants full allegiance. And if there's anybody who knew it, it was Solomon. David gave him instructions in 1 Kings 2, 4. 
He quoted Yahweh saying to Solomon, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, same word, and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. When Solomon himself speaks to the, to the nation of Israel after the dedication of the temple, these are his words. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted. Same word, same idea. To the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. And then God himself, Yahweh, appears to Solomon in chapter nine. He says, as for you, if you will walk with me as your father David walked in integrity of heart, same word, and uprightness doing according to all that I've commanded you and you will keep my statutes. He would bless him. We think of this idea of partial obedience is disobedience. We know this with our kids. If our kids are instructed to do something, but they have a bad attitude or they're slow to do it, even though they might pick up when you ask them to, they don't do it when you want them to, they do it with a bad attitude, that's disobedience. At least that's the theory in our house most of the time. Amen. <laughs> yeah. But the, the truth is, is when we choose the ways in which we want to obey, we're disobeying. I want you to open up. We have a, a terrific example of this. Open to 2 Kings 17. Turn there with me. We're going to see a great picture of partial obedience. 2 Kings 17, we'll end up in verses 33 and 34, but let me give you the background. The king of Assyria, the nation, the northern tribes have been taken into exile, and the king of Assyria hauls them off, and he replaces them with pagans. And what happens? They don't know how to worship Yahweh, and so... He sends lions to attack them. And they go back to the king of Assyria and go, hey, we don't know how to worship this God. There's lions attacking the people. So what's he do? He, he sends a priest to help the people learn how to fear Yahweh, to obey Yahweh. But all these groups of people are, while learning how to worship Yahweh, have still kept their own idols. They're even sacrificing their children. And it's interesting here, So it just tells us in in verses 27 through 31 how they kept their foreign gods. And it says this. Now, when I say feared, just replace feared the Lord as obeyed the Lord, okay? They obeyed the Lord when it says they feared him. It's essentially what it means. So verse 33, they feared the Lord and served, and that's Yahweh. They feared Yahweh and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away into exile. To this day, they do according to earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or ordinances of the law. So in one verse, it tells us that they obeyed Yahweh and they also obeyed these other gods. And the next verse, it says, they did not fear Yahweh. And the author's making a point here that they were, they were going through the motions of worshiping Yahweh, but worship to Yahweh is exclusive. And verse 34 tells us they didn't actually worship the Lord. They added him on to what else they were doing, and that is disobedience. They did not obey the Lord. So we apply this to ourselves, and we examine our own hearts and say, is there any place where I have partially obeyed the Lord, where I obey him in one area, but I've left another area to, the, to, to my own discretion? So the disobedience of Solomon led to a turned heart, which we see is the the cause of his great fall. And the second 
The second thing we want to look at here is the extent of Solomon's fall, verses 5 through 8. And we're going to glean uh, most benefit if we just see the degree to which Solomon fell. And there's two ways we're going to look at the extent, the greatness of Solomon's fall. This great wickedness and a great irony. There was a great wickedness. It says in verse 5 that his heart, that he set up Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Now, this is a, a god that first shows up in Judges 2, and it would have been a, a Canaanite goddess of sex. Probably not shocking, considering 700 wives and girlfriends and concubines and a detestable idol. Chemosh, verse 7, another idol that would have taken child's human sacrifices. There's one idol in particular we know a lot about that's mentioned here in verse 7. Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Molech was a, a brass, hollow idol, and I won't even describe the hideous acts that would take place with that idol, including child sacrifice. Solomon oversaw the institution of this idol. Leviticus 8.21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 22, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. And Molech is forever connected with the ultimate in apostate worship. Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 made his son pass through the fire. And so the obvious response from us is child sacrifice, burning of children. Look, I would never do that. Let's get real. How could anybody? And the question we have to ask ourselves, and I have to ask myself, is this. Are you wiser than Solomon? The one who we go to for practical wisdom in our lives, in the scriptures? The one I instruct my children out of? The one who the uh, men's ministry at Grace studied for an entire year, this Solomon? And we like to think of ourselves in this modern light and we're too sophisticated to fall into the sins that are described here. But we're capable of them. We don't offer sacrifices on, at, the, at the feet of idols, burning them. We hide, we hide it in a clinic. We don't, uh, we don't worship openly um, in lust. We, we have phones in our pockets. We're so sophisticated. But the warning is this, the wisest man who walked the earth short of Christ fell into these sins. We should be warned. So, there was great wickedness, but there was also great irony in Solomon's sin. Now, irony. Um, irony is not me showing up and having the same shirt on as my friend at school one day. That's a coincidence. Let me, let's define irony. Irony is this, the incongruity between the actual result of a sequence of events and the normal or expected result. It's a fire station burning down. That's irony. Okay? It's, it's not what we expect to have happen. It's irrational. And there was a great irony with, what, with, with the acts of Solomon. The first, there's two I want to mention. The first is this. Solomon 
was instructed by David in 1 Kings 2, instructed by King David how to live righteously. And then he turns around and instructs the nation of Israel how to, on how to sin. He receives instructions, instruction on righteousness and turns around and teaches the nation how to sin. And why would I say that? Verse six, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Very familiar words. We would have heard it back in Judges, but it's the first time it appears in the book of Kings. And you're gonna hear evil in the sight of the Lord 11 more times in 1 Kings and 20 more times in 2 Kings. He sets the pattern for the sin that the kings of Israel, north and south, would participate in for hundreds of years to come. In 1 Kings 3, 9 to 10, Solomon uh, prays so that he would be able to discern good and evil. And look at where he ends up. And his sin is going to cause the nation to crash from the heights that it achieved under his rule. And the idolatry that he partakes in is going to lead to idolatry amongst the people. And it's going to be the beginning of a long road into captivity, into exile. So that's the first irony, the first irrational thing, the thing we don't expect to have happen. The second one is this. He builds the temple for Yahweh in chapters five through eight. The glory of the Lord descends on the temple. And in chapter 11, he builds the high place for detestable idols. The one who sees God himself, builds the temple, the glory of the Lord comes down. The same Solomon erects idols to foreign gods. The irony of that, the irrationality. Not for 300 years would these idols finally come down. 2 Kings 23, during Josiah's reforms, it says this, the high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king, that is Josiah, defiled. 300 years they had plunged into worship of these idols that Solomon had put up. There's this irrationality, this irony. The very people, the very one who's to be the example, the protector falls into wickedness. I have a friend who is a fairly close friend as a pastor uh, up in Oregon. And he, two years ago, got his dream job. He finally left his job at a warehouse and became an associate pastor leading worship for the youth finally got to quit his job and work full-time in ministry. And two years into that, he turns around and runs off with the director of the, uh, the children's ministry. Both of them married, admitting their sin before the pastor, openly leaving, leaving their spouses and marrying each other in, in blatant, outright sin. And we just ask ourselves, like, how can we do this? And here's some really... Um, this, if you get any application from today, this will be it. Sin makes us stupid. That's, that's a key. Sin makes us stupid, irrational, far beyond what we ever thought we were capable of doing. If you would ask him when he took that position and you lay out the sequence of events, he'd say, no way, I would never do that. It makes us irrational. So 
We see that the cause of Solomon's fall was his disobedience, which turned his heart. The extent was that it was wicked, illogical, irrational. And finally, now we're going to see, not finally, but thirdly, we're going to see the consequence of Solomon's sin. Verse 9, now the Lord was angry with Solomon. You could express it this way. The Lord was outraged. The Lord had this intense form of anger. Why so angry? Exodus 23 through 5, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Second commandment, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Anger and jealousy, righteous anger, righteous jealousy. These aren't things that the world likes to talk about. These aren't things that we have a right view of in our culture. What we hear in our culture is this, choose love, be kind. But, but here we see Yahweh is angry. Oprah Winfrey, I know everybody knows Oprah Winfrey. I want to have famous talk show host, um, new age enthusiast, billionaire. Um, I heard a, an account from her several years ago. So she was listening to a, a very exciting, charismatic pastor who was talking about the character of God. And she said he was mentioning God's omnipresence, his omniscience. And then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And Oprah says this, something struck me and something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. And she says that this was the turning point in her spiritual life where she walked away from Christianity and entered into whatever it is she does now. And this is indicative of the world that they view the jealousy and the anger of the God like an angry boyfriend running after his girlfriend. But the Lord is righteously jealous. He's angry over his name. His name, his people, his covenant draws him, causes him to be angry when he sees it's violated. And he'd waited a long time. Nehemiah knew this. When he saw mixed marriages in his day, he says this in Nehemiah 13, 25. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no one like him. And he was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Nehemiah sees the sin taking place in the heart of the people and he knows the anger of the Lord is stirred. He is a jealous God. Verse nine, it says, the Lord was angry because he turned away the God of Israel who had appeared to him two times, twice. First Kings three, verse five, this is the first account. He appears in a dream at night and God asks him, what do you wish me to give you? And verse 14 After Solomon asks him, the Lord says this, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, and as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So he gets a direct appearance from the Lord, and that's not the only time he appears before him. He appears to him again in 1 Kings 9. And he ends up saying, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, so on and so forth, I will establish 
my statutes and ordinances. Two times the Lord himself, all the rare appearances of, the, of Yahweh appearing before man. Twice he appears to Solomon. And the emphasis in both of his appearances is this, warning, follow me, obey me. But in spite of this, Solomon persists. In verse 11, the Lord says, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And the idea here is there's a certainty. When he says it, obviously, I will surely tear it away. There's no doubt the kingdom will be taken from Solomon. It's like this. It's like a wrecking ball demolishing a building. It swings, it gains momentum. And when it's coming back, there's no stopping it. It's going to take the building out. It's as if the wrecking ball had come up. It's at its peak. And the Lord says, I will surely tear this kingdom from you. Here comes the wrecking ball. It's going to happen. It's very reminiscent of 1 Samuel 15. You will recognize these words. Samuel to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor. Very familiar words. So the Lord is going to judge sin. It's certain. And so knowing that, why do we fiddle around with sin? Why do we mess around in disobedience? when we see it starts in such a small way and leads to such great things. So we know the cause, the extent of the sin. We know the punishment of the Lord. And finally, we're going to look at hope in spite of Solomon's sin, verses 12 to 13. Given our proclivity to sin, we have to ask, what hope is there? What hope is there if Solomon could fall? Verse 12, the Lord says, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. I will not tear the kingdom away for your, in your days. This is, a, this is a reduction of the judgment he's going to give to him. He says, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you, but I won't do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. And then in verse 13, He's, after he says, I'll tear it out of the hand of your son, he says, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom. Again, he's compassionate. How could he do this? How could he say he's going to judge and then retract? Okay, I will take it away at a different time. I won't take it all away. I'll be merciful. And we look back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And these words are reiterated again in Psalm 89. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful." Why? How could he do this? God is a covenant-keeping God. He will not lie to the promise he gave to David. He will punish sin. 
and he will deliver from sin. But how can he withhold total punishment? On what grounds? In the face of grievous sins, the wickedness of Solomon and all the kings that would follow him, how can he maintain his justice and uphold his covenant to David? What will he do with this sin? And we'll close with an answer to this question. Verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. On the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, also known as the Mount of Olives. The site of detestable sin and corruption on the Mount of Olives, signifying everything that is evil in the heart of man. 900 years later, in a garden on that very same mountain, the Son of God would be sweating blood as he contemplated the punishment he would endure to reconcile sinners to himself, to deal with the horrible sin of not only Solomon, but every man, woman who would put their trust in him in the same place. Christ is the one who made a way to reconcile the sinners to a holy God. And so what do we do? How can we just will ourselves, be obedient, do the right thing, don't fall into sin? We look to Christ. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We keep, sh- keep short accounts with the Lord and we keep a close eye on our heart. The more we see the beauty of Christ, the more we will love and obey him. Turn to Colossians 1. I want to read verses 9 to 14. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ reconciled sinners to a holy God. May we be warned by this passage, but may we look to the finished work of Christ and the hope that we have in him and praise the Lord that he's made a way, that he's redeemed us through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this message. May we learn much. May we look to Christ. May we examine our hearts and give all the glory to you for redeeming rebellious sinners. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.